The Video Insiders is the show that makes sense of all that is happening in the world of online video, as seen through the eyes of a second-generation Kodak nerd and a marketing guy who knows what iframes and macro blocks are. And here are your hosts, Mark Donegan and Dror Gill. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Video Insiders. I'm uh, Dror Gill, and with me is my favorite co-host, Mark Donegan. Hey, Mark, how are you doing? Well, I'm glad I'm your favorite. I didn't know there was another co-host because, you know, a favorite, a favorite implies that there's multiple co-hosts. So, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. <laughs> no, you, you're the only one and the favorite one. Oh, okay, good, good, good. Hey, I'm, I'm doing well, Dror. Well, we have a great conversation today, don't we? Excellent interview. Yeah, excellent interview and an awesome topic. Um, I'll just give a small hint. What would you say if I told you that you could broadcast video with zero delay and zero network bandwidth consumption? It's impossible. Impossible. Well, <laughs> today we will learn that the impossible is possible. So today we have with us Peter Gulamino, who is the CDO of IBM Media and Entertainment. Hi, Peter, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Dora. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. It's really an honor to be here. So welcome, Peter. It's uh, really awesome you know, to have you with us today. Uh, tell us about your background and what you do at IBM. Sure. So as you mentioned, I'm the CTO for IBM's Media and Entertainment Industries, and um, it's a global position. And as you know, Media and Entertainment is pretty broad. There's a lot of sub-businesses within Media and Entertainment, but there are you know, publishers, there are studios, broadcasters, cable networks, new media like Google and Facebook and so on. And you know, we cover all of them in our patch. And I've been very fortunate in that because it's so diverse, you get to do a lot of different things, so you're never the same thing twice. And um, most recently, I've been uh, working across the IBM groups, and mo mostly including IBM Research. I've been working most recently with broadcasters on the new broadcast standard. So I represent IBM on uh, the ATSC organization. Uh, we're members, and uh, we can talk about you know, what, what we're doing, what ATSC is doing, and what the whole broadcast standard's about. Yeah, I think that would be a great idea because ATSC uh, 3.0, which is also called Next Gen TV, has some big uh, promises um, in terms of delay and the fact that it's a separate network. So um, can you tell us a bit about uh, this uh, new standard? Give us some background. If you remember about 25 years ago, there was a transition from analog broadcast, which was called NTSC, to a digital broadcast, which was ATSC 1 but it was just a bitstream, and it was delivering just audio and video to TVs in your home. And what's interesting about broadcast is broadcast is a wireless network, um, although it's always just been an island. It's never really integrated with anything else. Um, and that was the impetus for this move towards ATSC3. And the big difference is ATSC3 broadcast standard is based on IP. So instead of emitting uh, a digital bitstream for audio and video, it basically emits packets. And so you can really transmit, of course, anything. You can transmit audio and video for sure, but you can do all types of other types of um, broadcasting as well. And the big advantage with a broadcast tower, especially in the UHF, VHF spectrum, is it has a tremendous reach 
and a tremendous ability to penetrate um, buildings and underground and so on. And so if I have an antenna on the Empire State Building, I have an 80-mile diameter um, that I can transmit and deliver content to, you know, across that 80-mile diameter. In New York, for instance, it covers 22 million people. So I can deliver content, data, or whatever once from that antenna and, you know, essentially, theoretically, 22 million people can receive it all at the same time because it travels from the antenna as an electromagnetic wave at the speed of light. So there is zero delay. And, of course, there is no network bandwidth because it's transmitted as a propagating electromagnetic wave. And uh, it, it, by definition, it is multicast. I transmit it once and everybody gets it. So those are the really big advantages. There are some other details that we can discuss as we move on in the discussion. But um, that's essentially the big differentiator. And also understand that they're, they're improving the quality. Absolutely. Yep. And because it's IP, they're leveraging all of the internet uh, video codecs like HEVC. Um, they're going to be delivering out of the box 4K with um, high dynamic range and wide color gamut as well as the latest audio codecs from Dolby. So they'll support Atmos or object-oriented audio. And all of that will be available. You know, it's actually available now. Stations are actually beginning to broadcast ATSC3. And it's sort of a chicken and egg thing. I mean, right now, you know, there are not that many TVs that are available. There are, you know, roughly about 20 models. Um, and the broadcasters are just beginning to transition so we're kind of like in a ramp-up stage, but as we move forward through 2021 and certainly into 2022, then we'll really start to reach a big hockey stick uplift in sets available to receive ATSC as well as other devices. Yeah, it's amazing. I know we're going to get into some uh, more you know, technical details a little bit later in this interview, but... I'm curious, what sort of, of uh, bit rates, you know, can ATSC support? So each broadcaster who has a, a broadcast license gets uh, a six megahertz frequency um, bandwidth. And that's what they distribute their TV signal on. And within that six megahertz bandwidth, they're able to essentially deliver 19.2 megabits a second. But with ATSC3, because of the the way they're doing the actual modulation, there's something called the Shannon limit. They're able to get pretty close to the Shannon limit as far as bit density versus, you know, with respect to available um, frequency bandwidth. And, you know, conservatively speaking, you know, they're able to deliver, you know, like around 27 megabits per second of data, you know, bandwidth in that six megahertz frequency. And that may not sound like a lot, but because they're using things like HEVC, they're able to actually use much better compression, both for audio and video, and deliver similar quality at much lower bit rate than they would say could do with, say, an MPEG-2 transport stream. Yeah, I mean, um, shoot, 27 megabits, two channels of 4K would, would fit in there. Right. But what's interesting to consider is... You know, when you think about it, uh, that previous example I gave of, you know, they have the antenna on the Empire State Building, right? <laughs> and it's delivering data, video, audio to 22 million people. That essentially translates into 16 terabytes per second 
of information emitted from that antenna, right? If I had to deliver 22 million individual streams, I'm up around 16 terabytes a second. Ah, I see. If, if it was unicast to all of those people over IP, like you have to do when you're uh, streaming over the top. Right. <laughs> wow. So instead of the 16 terabytes, you know, you're just doing 27 megabits and everybody can tune into the same channel yep. and, and watch it simultaneously. So this is actually solving the problem with unicast that you have in, uh, in IP delivery. Of course, for, for VOD, you need the unicast, but for all of the live events and the sports and the, you know, the live uh, TV channels, it's, it's unicast in IP is used uh, unnecessarily, you know, just because of legacy protocols and, uh, and routers and things like that. Exactly. And even, you know, ATSC3 will also be able to support those other modalities like AVOD and SVOD and pay-per-view. Um, primarily, they'll do that through caching. Right. So they'll they'll be able to transmit data and cache it, you know, whether it's on portable devices or the other target for them is in vehicle or even home gateways. And basically, you know, think about an over the top service where there's never a, a circle spinning or a frame drop because you're actually consuming it local because you're pulling it right off the cache on a local device. Yeah. Let's say you use, let's say, uh, three or four megabits. Uh, of the bandwidth for a single HD channel. And then with all the rest, you can broadcast data. And that data can include uh, movies that you download uh, to the target device. And then those can play uh, VOD. That's right. And you can seek back and forward and everything because after you broadcast them, it's all uh, local. Exactly correct. Exactly. Incredible. Now, um, I know that you know, I live in Phoenix and Phoenix has been a, uh, a major hotbed for ATSC 3.0. Um, tell us, you know, where are deployments happening? Um, you know, where, at least in the U S, um, could someone actually watch ATS 3.0 service? Phoenix you mentioned is, is really interesting. So Phoenix was actually set up as, as almost like a laboratory, um, there was uh, there's an, an awesome woman, uh, Ann Shelley, who is the managing director of Pearl TV. And, um, you know, she really organized all of the big networks and big station groups to work together to really figure out how to deploy ATSC3. You know, what type of equipment's required? You know, how, how do you, you know, create the programming? Well, there's something called the framework that they built to be able to allow the content to be rendered on the devices and so on. So that basically allowed them to build this handbook that they can now provide to all the broadcasters. And by the end of the year, um, there looks to be about 20 markets that will be lit up. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but here's the reasoning. Um, there's no mandate from the FCC for um, a cutover from ATSC1 to ATSC3. So it's totally voluntary. The other issue is the broadcasters still have to maintain uh, an ATSC-1 broadcast along with an ATSC-3 broadcast. I believe it's for five years. So what that means is that the, the broadcasters in, the, in these various markets, who may be competitors with each other, have to work together to share towers. For instance, if Tower A is getting converted from ATSC-1 to 3, then the programming that was being broadcast out of that tower has to go somewhere 
And so there's something called a lighthouse where maybe the other station that they're partnering with will take over that capability and, and broadcast both sets of programs off that tower, kind of share that tower while the first one is being converted and then flip over when, when the conversion is done and so on. So there's been a lot of you know effort in putting together those partnerships and, and, and of course the changeover on the towers and the transmission equipment. It's, it's not trivial, but it's not a complete overhaul of the tra transmission equipment, but it, you know, it's, a, it's an involved process. And so areas that are starting to be lit up today, Washington, D.C., um, San Diego, uh, Texas, Maryland, I forget off the top of my head, but, you know, kind of like they're looking at the big metropolitan areas to begin with. They were actually targeted with to do 60 markets by the end of 2020. But unfortunately, because of the pandemic, it really put a big hold on everyone. So they had to push things off kind of on the back burner. But, you know, they've been very diligent and they're full steam ahead. And, you know, like I said, they'll hit 20 markets by the end of 2020. You know, this is, uh, so I'm looking on the Pearl TV website right now. And, you know, Dora, what's really interesting is um, this is just an awesome example of broadcasters, media companies, technology vendors, the entire, you can say, kind of ecosystem coming together to say, we're going to all work together. We're going to, uh, you know, exactly um, uh, as, as you said, uh, you know, build the playbook, figure out how to deploy this, you know, identify a test market. And it required investment from lots of people, but all coming together to say, we want this to, to be successful. You know, we, we, we believe in this and it's super impressive. I mean, I'm looking on here, it's Cox and Scripps and Gray and Hearst and Meredith and Nexstar and Sinclair, Tegna, Graham. I mean, like, you know, who, who else is there to, to get involved? It's pretty incredible. So, and, and that's in the, in the broadcast space, but then, uh, there, there's another element to this, which is the mobile. Absolutely. Right. And the convergence with mobile and using the mobile network as a back channel. So that requires a whole different level of collaboration between TV broadcasters and mobile operators, right? You're absolutely right. And, and, and there's a little bit of, you know, controversy about that. So clearly, um, you know, the CE manufacturers are on board, right? The people who build the TV sets for sure. In the U.S., there's this you know, kind of dichotomy where many of the broadcasters really don't don't see mobile devices having ATSC receivers in them because they see this as a conflict with the telcos who want to deliver video over their 5G networks and essentially, you know, charge for the bandwidth. And, you know, historically that's been the case. And, and, and you know, that's an area um, that many of the broadcasters feel won't happen, at least not immediately. Of course, there are other broadcasters who have a mobile-first strategy, and they are, you know, actively working with fabrication plants to build software-defined radios, to put inside mobile phones, um, and offering mobile phones to MVNOs to say, you know, here you, you can deliver, you can receive, you know, free TV over the air, um, and do all types of hybrid kinds of broadcast techniques, integrating cellular and, and broadcast TV. So mobile, uh, I, I think, in my opinion, 
is a green space and it, it could take off. I, I'm sure there'll be resistance from the telcos. But as a corollary to that, pretty much everybody is in agreement with respect to delivery to automotive. That automotive looks to be a really big market for ATSC, um, not only for infotainment, right? Like, um, you know, advertisements and, you know, video that plays in the backseat and so on. But even more importantly, it's the data casting aspect of delivering software firmware updates to automotive, which if you really think about it, they're just IoT devices on wheels. And if I have to hit 10 million, you know, devices, it's a lot more efficient to do it with a broadcast signal than it is to do it with a point-to-point cellular signal. Not only is it more efficient, but like I said, I can you can reach vehicles six stories underground with a broadcast signal, and I can't do that in a, with a, a cellular signal unless I have a repeater. And also, as I move into less dense areas where there are fewer cell towers, you know that becomes an issue. Again, broadcast can come and supplement that. So that's an area, you know, on the mobile side that all the broadcasters are pretty much in agreement with. On the cellular side. You know, some say, yes, it's going to happen. Others are pretty adamant that it won't happen. And, and it remains to be seen. I can tell you this, that we are, as part of ATSC, um, IBM is part of a, what's called the India Implementation Team. And in India, the, the government there contacted ATSC organization and said, can you work with our public broadcaster and one of our big universities to put a proof of concept in for ATSC, because the problem we have is that most people in India consume TV on their mobile devices, and we're suffering a lot of congestion on our mobile networks. And potentially, this is a way to offload those cellular networks for the you know one-to-many video live streams, sporting events, and so on. And so we're in the middle of you know helping to bring that proof of concept to fruition working with a lot of different vendors to demonstrate that, yeah, in a market like India where, you know, everybody does consume, you know, video on their mobile devices, this maybe is a good alternative to kind of relieve that congestion. What is the business model behind ATSC 3.0? Could this be the medium or the media, I guess, um, for a, a, a paid service? Absolutely. So first and foremost, because it's an IP-based broadcast standard, you have addressability. So that now begins to open the door to all of the business models associated with over the top. So I can essentially do targeted advertising, right? I can deliver unique content to, to specific individuals. I can support pay-per-view subscription VOD and, and advertising supported VOD, which is very interesting because now broadcasters actually have an audience they can directly monetize. And so that's going to really upset the apple cart with respect to things like ratings, which are basically statistical samplings. Now you're in the realm of census-level data that you can collect. There's all kinds of issues associated, you know, privacy and, you know, many, many things that will certainly be addressed. But that's one, you know, advertising, you know, uh, targeted advertising and, and subscription-type services are key. And think of them as sort of like not really disruptive. It's kind of, you know, TV as usual, just with enhancements, right? But then you start to get into some really interesting <laughs> um, disruptive, you know, business models like data casting. And as we talked about before, you know, there are some estimates that, you know, using 
broadcast as the mechanism to distribute you know, one to many. That's like three orders of magnitude less expensive than doing it on a cellular network. So three orders of magnitude, ten, you know, one ten thousandth the cost is significant for the broadcasters to you know, essentially acquire a large percentage of the market that's looking to distribute content. Not, not just content, but, you know, everything, software, firmware, IoT updates, you name it, so digital signage, you know, on and on and on. Huge opportunity. Um, in fact, folks like Sinclair and Nexstar formed a company called BitPath, and they are completely focused on the whole notion of monetizing spectrum. You know, and that, that, that's another area that broadcasters are looking to, to potentially leverage their broadcast spectrum to work with other of their of their customers and if you think about this is very interesting broadcast their biggest customers are cable companies believe it or not right through the transmission you know retransmission fees so broadcasters don't want to upset the apple cart with cable companies they want to help them because it's a major source of revenue and one of the really interesting things i've heard about you know cord cutting is happening all over the place <laughs> and cable subscriptions are diminishing you know regularly and and that hurts broadcasters as well as cross cable companies and one of the things that could happen is you know essentially cable companies could leverage or you know use some of the bandwidth from a broadcaster in partnership to essentially retarget those people who cut the cord and deliver bundled services, just like they deliver cell phone services, they can deliver bundled over-the-air broadcast services and recapture that audience as part of their subscription plans. Mm -hmm. So if you have enough bandwidth, you can have uh, like a basic channel, which could be a commercial channel that is funded by the advertisement. But then you can have a few more HD channels that are paid, that only subscribers will be able to receive them, right? Exactly. And, and as a matter of fact, one of the major standards or components of the standard is content protection. And there's a whole group called A3SA, the ATSC um, Security Association, which is tasked with implementing content protection so that you could deliver those types of premier services only to subscribers that are authenticated and can access to the content. And, and the basic uh, business model, just like regular digital television today, like ATSC 1.0, you have your uh, advertise, uh, commercial channels, which are fan funded by advertising, mm -hmm. and you have public broadcast as well, right? Yeah, public broadcast is a whole other domain that is being looked at clearly by all the public broadcasters. Things like community services, distance learning, you know, campus alerting systems, all types of services that can be implemented through the public broadcast. One of the most straightforward things is if you think about all of the, you know, the telethons that broadcasters have to acquire donations, you know, today everybody gets the donation interruption while they're watching the show, right? With ATSC3, once I make my donation, I don't necessarily have to get the interruption anymore. I can just watch the program. Very cool. What is the cost to deploy ATS 3.0? Like, like what does a transmitter cost and, you know, all the infrastructure? 
I'm not an expert on that, but I, I think it's somewhere around $300,000. Mostly they have to change out something called the exciter because they do modulate the, the signal um, differently than they do today. As far as I understand, they don't have to change out the transmitter. They just have to change this exciter component out. And then, of course, you know, there are other components like the packager that's going to take the packets and package them in a way that the exciter can create the RS signal and send to the transmitter. There are encoders that have to be deployed to implement the HEVC codec and things like that. So all of those pieces. And then, of course, you know, on the broadcast side, they actually have to build apps because what happens is everything just doesn't happen on the TV by itself. The, the broadcasters actually transmit an app over the air that lands on the TV. And that app starts receiving the signal. Yes. And that app can do all kinds of really cool things, like if the TV is connected to a broadband connection, and it doesn't have to be, but if it is... And most of them today are. Sure. And then they can do all types of what they call hybrid broadcast, where they can intermix you know, live content from over the air with other content that's coming in over a broadband connection. Say I want to deliver you know, point-to-point user-specific content, like I'm watching a sporting event, but I'm interested in a specific player, you know, that content could come to me uniquely over my broadband connection, and it's merged through that application running on the TV. So it's like they had in Europe this hybrid TV, I think, HBB, something like that, right? That's exactly correct. So let's, um, you know, let's talk about some of the more technical elements. And we, of course, spent a lot of time on this show talking about encoding and, and video codecs, although that's by no means exclusively. Um, but you already mentioned that uh, HEVC is the standard that is supported. Now, are there other codecs that are supported or, or how does codec integration work uh, inside the standard? My understanding is it's HEVC and it's MPEG-DASH is going to be what's delivered, just as if it was an over-the-top transmission. And the important thing to realize with this is, you know, bit rate is important and quality, of course, is important. But where it really comes to be very interesting around ATSC3 is the more you can deliver a quality signal at a lower bit rate, the more extra bandwidth you have to start to leverage for other services, for, for data casting, for other types of frequent spectrum and monetization. <laughs> and so there is, a, there is a focus on, you know, how can they deliver the highest quality at the lowest bit rate? And, you know, that's why, you know, HEVC was chosen and, you know, all, all the things that, um, a Beamer does and, and so on is you know, using AI to, you know, deliver a super high quality, but keep the bandwidth as low as possible. These are all things that broadcasters are really going to start paying attention to because many of them have eyes on, you know, what else can I do with this spectrum? Because it's an incredibly valuable resource, especially the public broadcasters, you know, because they actually have in their license a mandate to do data casting. So it's right in their ballywick also. So they're interested in it as well. I'm very happy to hear that. It's so interesting how it doesn't matter how um, the video stream, uh, you know, the bits are being delivered. In other words, whether they're streamed, whether it's, you know, an over-the-air media, you know, like ATSC 3.0, bandwidth matters. It does. Yeah, bandwidth still matters. Even if you have 27 megabits, 
you know, you want to use uh, the least amount as possible for your video channel, and then you have many bits left over for data casting, and you can go to, to Ford or Chrysler and tell them, you want update for your car? You know, we can deliver that. That's exactly it. And I understand that uh, there, there is a special mode of HEVC um, that is used to enable uh, reception in mobile devices where the reception conditions are changing, like building it in layers. Is that right? Yes, that's that's exactly right. They they want to deliver this, you know, 4K, you know, HDR experience. And, you know, if they can use those extensions to do that efficiently, and my understanding is, right, it, it uses, you know, various layers instead of encoding all the separate bit streams independently. Um, I think that's going to be something they're absolutely going to be doing. That, that's very interesting. You know, imagine that you have a local sports event. Mm-hmm. like a football match and you're you're transmitting that on your uh eight local atsc 3.0 tv station then actually when you are seeing that game you're seeing it a few seconds ahead of your neighbors that have cable or satellite right that's right <laughs> that's, that's exactly right so now instead of going ott and being behind the curve you know and hearing the cheers and seeing the goal you know like a few seconds later now You're experiencing everything earlier. You're going back in time. Next thing you know, in Vegas, you know, in the uh, betting rooms and all the, the, the sports betting, they're going to have ATSC up on the, uh, you know, while, while guys are sitting in their apps, you know, 30 seconds delayed or whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so interesting because, you know, commercial broadcast has been in existence since, you know, roughly 1941. Uh, it happened before with with mechanical kinds of devices, but real commercial electronic broadcast started in forty one. And for all of that time, like radio, it it was the only wireless communications network, right? It, you know, everything else was wired. And you know it did it so efficiently, and everybody was able to experience the events. And then, you know, only in the last, I'd say thirty years, When you know things went hyperbolic and digital, did we start to experience these issues of point-to-point content distribution? And you know I, I think that's what kind of really woke up the broadcasters in, in the sense that, you know, a, if they didn't do anything, they could easily have gone extinct because their spectrum is so valuable that there was a lot of competition for the government to take that spectrum away from broadcasters and give it to other industries. Whether that be telco or whatever, and so that was one of their prime motivations. But I think the other motivation was we have to stop being an island. You know they, they were completely isolated, and now they're they're totally capable of integrating with all of the IP technologies and riding the curve of IP technologies to dramatically reduce their cost. And dramatically address new business opportunities and I think that's that's the biggest thing that could be the Renaissance of broadcast in my opinion yeah definitely and going back to low latency I think that's very important well um, Peter you've sold me I'm convinced I'm convinced now uh, too bad I just you know a couple months ago upgraded my TV that shouldn't deter you because the, in addition to the The TVs that will be produced with ATSC3 receivers in them, there'll also be home gateways and USB dongles that you basically plug into an HDMI port. And not only do they receive H, you know, ATSC3, but they rebroadcast it out as Wi-Fi. So once you have one in your house, then all your devices will be able to 
essentially be ATSC3 receivers. Oh, that's incredible. So, so that solves the issue with the mobile devices and the tablets and the laptops. Now they can get the ATSC signal, which is rebroadcasted by your home uh, tuner device over Wi-Fi. Incredible. So um, let's, you know, let's talk about deployment timelines, um, starting with devices. <laughs> so that sounds super compelling. When are we going to see these? Well, today, the three major manufacturers, Samsung, LG, and Sony, at CES 2019, announced 20 models. Of course, they were all their high-end 8K model TVs that had ATSC-free tuners in them. By you know Black Friday of 2021, we will have production you know levels of sets you know at, at normal prices, right? For for ATSC free. So for this year, you know, there's maybe a few thousand TVs in the market. You know, people actually own them, three a couple thousand. By the end of 2021, they're predicting somewhere around you know 10 to 12 million sets available. And by 2022, you know, many, many more. So at, they'll be at scale by the beginning of 2022. And and those are global worldwide numbers or that's just in the U.S.? That's just the U.S. because it's a standard in, in the U.S. It's a standard in Korea. And potentially, it, you know, if, if all goes well, maybe it'll be a standard in India. And, and South Korea already deployed, right? Yeah, they've been in production for four years already. So they were ahead of us. And it, it makes a lot of sense because, of course, LG and Samsung are Korean-based companies, and you know they they put a lot of effort into this. Um, but yeah, they they're the they were the first ones um, to market. What's what's also happening is just last week, Sinclair announced a mobile phone that they produced with an ATSC3 radio in it. So they have a partnership with Sankia Labs. Uh, Sankia Labs is a R and D um, company in India. Uh, who develop software-defined radios. They develop two kinds of chips, ones for phones, and another one is for uh, automobile radio head-ends. So um, the phone you know, is now available. It's really a demonstration device. It, I don't believe Sinclair is looking to become a phone manufacturer, but you know, they built the phone to prove that, yes, it works, and you can receive the signal, and you, know, you can do some interesting things. Um, and they're looking to target MVNOs to in, in interest them. That supposedly they built, you know, some large amount of chips that they will provide free to whoever wants to put them in their phones. And then I believe um, there was some work done between Sankia and Samsung, who owns Harman, to embed the software-defined radio chip in in some radio head ends. And and this is. This is a multi-protocol. It's not just ATSC. It's ATSC three, ATSC one, DVB-T two, DVB. All of the broadcast wireless standards are supported by the radio. And um, you know there have been some trials both in Korea and in the U.S. You know doing infotainment and data casting to vehicles using those types of components. Boy, that just seems, that seems huge. I, I agree that that use case, um, you know, but then once you experience it in the car, why would you not want to carry that over into your home and, yeah. you know, into other mobile applications? So yeah, really, really exciting. Well, um, 
Peter, you know, thank you for giving us the the, the history lesson uh, of ATSC 3.0. And um, I think this is definitely a standard and and a, and a technology to watch. And uh, I'm going to be doing that. And and I, 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 lost, I, of course, want to thank you, Peter, uh, for really opening our minds to this uh, amazing um, a sea of, of new applications and use cases that are possible when you have such an um, efficient broadcasting mechanism for both uh, video and data and uh, using existing uh, spectrum that uh, the TV stations already use. Um, I think it's uh, really very interesting to see how this will uh, uh, develop in the U.S. Um, and uh, thanks again for coming on uh, the Video Insiders podcast. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Dior and Mark. It was really, really, like I said, an honor to be part of the podcast. So thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Well, thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening to the Video Insiders podcast. If you'd like to appear on the show, just send an email to thevideoinsiders at beamer.com. That's B-E-A-M-R.com with a brief description on what you're working on and why you think it's interesting for our audience. This podcast is sponsored by Beamer Imaging. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity that they represent.